Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. Over the last few weeks, we have been surveying the letters to the seven churches, and now we move out of chapters 2 and 3 and into chapters 4 to 6 where we have the opportunity to examine closer uh, the seven seals. And in doing so, I really want to encourage you to... (laughs) get ready to to move your thumb around and and fingers around in the Old Testament because certainly over the next three chapters, we will be constantly going back into the prophets so as to better appreciate what John is after here in these chapters 4, 5, and 6 because if you've heard me say it one time, you've probably heard me say it a hundred times. You cannot understand the New Testament if you are not formed in the Old Testament. I mean, Paul quotes the Old Testament over 500 times, over 500 times. So you know you can't understand Paul if you don't know the Old Testament. Jesus Christ himself says what? You search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me, right? He says on the road to Emmaus that he is a fulfillment to the law of Moses. So you can't appreciate Christ's words, if you don't understand the Old Testament. And so it is with the book of Revelation. If you've been with me these past few weeks, you know you need to have a, a sense of the Old Testament. And so I really want to encourage all of you not only to be ready to turn to the Old Testament, but maybe during your off time to spend some extra time with the Old Testament. I really encourage all of you listeners out there, whatever faith you may belong to, to get your hands on Jeff Cavins the Great Adventure series, because he does a beautiful job of showing how God works in salvation history. And what he does in that series is he really does a beautiful job of bringing together the historical books, the prophetic books, and certainly uh, the Pentateuch. So yeah, I would encourage you to get your hands on that. Certainly it would be a complimentary study to what we are doing here with the book of Revelation. And as I've noted, we are primarily drawing from Michael Barber's Coming Soon, Um, of course, alongside of Peter Williamson's commentary on the book of Revelation and Scott Hahn's Lamb Supper. Okay, so the seven seals. This has us again in chapter 4, so if you can go to the book of Revelation and turn to chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and lo, in heaven an open door, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up hither, and I will show you what must take place after this. So with the words come up hither, John is taken up into heaven. And as I noted last time we were together, I mean, what would it be like to be taken up into heaven? Well, John was taken up into heaven. The voice tells John that he is about to see what must take place after this. So John has now moved from seeing what is, that is the situation of the seven churches, to what will take place hereafter, the future events that will lead up to the fall of the harlot city. Now, I know many of us want to interpret 
these texts within the context of the rapture, right? Uh, during which they believe Christians will be taken up into heaven. However, the word rapture never occurs here. Instead, John is about to see how Daniel's prophecy, here we are back in the prophet Daniel, Daniel's prophecy concerning the Son of Man is fulfilled in Christ. There are, in fact, numerous striking parallels between Daniel chapter 7 and the book of Revelation chapters 4 to 5. In Daniel in the book of Revelation, you see God's appearance on the throne, fire before the throne, heavenly servants surrounding the throne. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 to 3, alongside of Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, we have the image of a sea. We also have books before the throne. We have the books opened. <laughs> we have a divine messianic figure approaching God's throne to receive authority to reign forever over a kingdom. You have uh, the seer's emotional distress on account of the, the vision, right? In Daniel chapter 7, verse 15, and this is what we'll read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 4. So there are just a handful of parallels. There are many more. And in all of this, what are we to gain? What are we made to see? That John portrays Christ as the one who, in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, receives the kingdom and gives it to the saints. As we will see, John shows how all of this occurs and what you might expect if you've been listening to this for the past few weeks, the liturgy, right? Now, in addition to Daniel, John's experience is foreshadowed by the vision of other prophets. How about Isaiah and Ezekiel? Isaiah and Ezekiel were also given a vision of God's throne room in heaven. Isaiah and Ezekiel both saw God's glory when they were commissioned to prophecy about the coming destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 586 BC. Now, why might that be important? Well, we've already talked about the importance of the temple being destroyed in 70 AD, so maybe there's something going on here, right? So, God allowed these prophets, that is Isaiah and Ezekiel, to see his glory in heaven so that they would know that the temple on earth was only penultimate, we could say. That the true temple is in the heavenly city above. And as we shall see, John's vision is meant to reveal this. In fact, the book of Revelation closely follows the pattern in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, many scholars have pointed out, uh, Michael Barber highlights uh, David Chilton and his work coming soon. I mean, it's really fascinating to go through the book of Revelation and to also do it with the book of Ezekiel, because similar to Daniel, the parallels are numerous. We have the throne vision in Ezekiel 1, like that of Revelation 4. In Revelation chapter 5, we'll be talking about the book. This is what you see in Ezekiel chapters 2 to 3. We have the four plagues in the book of Revelation, as we do in Ezekiel 5. Revelation 6, we have the slain under the altar, like that of Ezekiel chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, we have the wrath of God as we do in Ezekiel 7. We have the seal on the saints' foreheads in Revelation 7 as we do in Ezekiel chapter 9. We have the coals from the altar, the eating of the book, the measuring of the temple, Jerusalem and Sodom, the cup of wrath, the vine of the land, the great harlot, the lament over the city, the scavenger's feast, the first resurrection, the new Jerusalem, 
the river of life, and others are all phrases used not only in the book of Revelation, but also in Ezekiel. Because why? (laughs) Ezekiel, like John, had foreseen the fall of Jerusalem and the establishment of the what? New Jerusalem. So it would make sense then that John would draw on the book of Ezekiel so heavily since John also prophecies concerning the destruction of the what? Temple and the coming of the heavenly city. So do you see what John is doing here? He wants to evoke this sense of what was going on during the time of not only Daniel, but also Ezekiel, as well as Isaiah, so that there might be this provocation, if you will, of what is soon to take place in the destruction of the temple. So John is very strategic in what he is doing. Okay, how about Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 to 3? At once I was in the Spirit, and lo, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there appeared like jasper and carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. Now, here again, this is language that might seem abstract if we were not familiar with the Old Testament. But John sees God's throne similarly to how Ezekiel had seen it in his day in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. The stones of jasper and carnelian are also significant. First of all, they were found where? But the Garden of Eden, the original earthly sanctuary, if you will. If you were to go to Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13, you see this, how the Garden of Eden was seen as the original earthly sanctuary. Interestingly, the Greek Old Testament tells us that uh, these stones of jasper and carnelian were worn by the high priest when he ministered in Israel's sanctuary. If you're to go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, that's what we find. The rainbow, of course, seen by both John and, and Ezekiel, signifies the new creation imagery in its connection with the flood of Noah that we read about in Genesis chapter 9. So, just in those few verses, we have all of these images that we are made to think about that point not only back to the Old Testament, but specifically the priesthood and worship in the Old Testament. And this is going to play itself out in future verses. How about chapter 4, verses 4 to 5? Round the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clad in white garments with golden crowns upon their heads. From the throne issues flash of lightning and voices and peals of thunder and before the throne burns seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of god okay so what's going on here well we should first say that the word for elder here the greek word there is uh, presbyteroi it is the word from which we get the english word priest right the number 24 evokes a number of Old Testament passages. Of note would be 1 Chronicles chapters 24 to 25, where David, right, King David, sets up 24 divisions of priests to serve and to sing in the temple. This is exactly what John's 24 elders do. They are singing and worshiping God. These elders are also described in royal terms, huh? Since they sit on thrones and and wear golden crowns. Now, who are these elders? It is very unlikely 
that they are angels, since the term elder is usually used in the Old Testament in reference to human beings, huh? It would seem that these elders represent the faithful whom Christ has made. What did we read in chapter 1, verse 6? A kingdom, priest to his God. So these 24 elders then represent the saints who have passed the test, so to speak, by offering their lives in priestly sacrifice and who now have received the crown of life. Their white garments are their righteous deeds. We should pause and go back to the Beatitudes for just a minute, because I think there's an important insight to be gained. You've heard me talk about the importance of purity. Well, when you peel back the English and you get into the heart of what that Greek is about, it's a fascinating word. The Greek for pure is kathados, kathados. On one hand, it means clean, pure, yes, but more specifically, it speaks to being without mixture, to be one thing, right? So to be pure is to be single-hearted for God. And when you are single-hearted for God, when you have one heart that is devoted to God, when that heart is not mixed with what is impure, then you will what? See God. Now, what's striking about this particular Greek and why I bring it up now is that it is a word that translates a Hebrew word that was often used for worship, offering, specific to the Levitical priestly rite. So what is going on here? When we have a pure heart that has been consecrated to God, we will see God. We will see God. And I bring that up again now because ultimately, (laughs) when we read of the white garments of righteous deeds, what we are made to see is the unique relationship between purity, what is clean, and holiness. So very important. Now, all that being said, what can we say about the image of flashes of lightning and voices and and peals of thunder? Does this not evoke (laughs) God's presence on Mount Sinai? You see what's going on here? John wants to draw out this deeper sense of what heaven is about, worship, liturgy, priestly worship. At Sinai, we can also see what? But a connection between the use of the term elder and the use of the term priest. There, after God has told Moses that he wants to make Israel a kingdom of priests, Moses calls together the elders of the people. Huh? Now, this passage contains other references to the Old Testament as well. The description of lightning coming from God's throne, which John sees in his vision, is also found in Ezekiel's vision. John also draws here from Zechariah 4. I mean, we've talked about Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel. Well, what about Zechariah? Well, in chapter 4, Zechariah is describing the seven spirits in terms of seven torches. Huh? We've already seen that the phrase seven spirits refers to the Holy Spirit. There also seems to be a connection between the seven torches and the seven lampstands. Now, we already know from chapter 1 that the seven lampstands are a symbol of the seven churches. It would seem now that the seven torches rest on the seven lampstands. In other words, the Spirit dwells in the church. The Spirit dwells in the church. And some of you Catholics out there might be thinking, does this have anything to do with the seven sacraments? Well, certainly. Yeah, because the Holy Spirit dwells in the life of the church in the sacramental life of the church, right? So 
In the end here, we can just continue to appreciate how the apocalypse paints this picture to show us that the Spirit is present in and through the church. And amen to that. Okay, let us turn down to chapter 4, verse 6. And before the throne, there is, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. All right, so the image of the sea of glass before the throne of God was prefigured where? Again, do you have your fingers ready? How about Solomon's temple? It was prefigured in Solomon's temple by a bronze lever before the Holy of Holies. If you were to go to Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 to 21, 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 23 to 26, this is what we read about, huh? Ancient Jews understood that their temple was only a copy of the heavenly temple, of the heavenly one. In the book of Wisdom, chapter 9, verse 8, we read about how the ancient Jews indeed understood that their temple was only a prototype of the greater temple to come. So when Moses built the tent, the prototype for the temple, he did so according to a heavenly vision that he saw. This view was taken up later by the author of Who the Hebrews, who said, For Christ has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Chapter 9, verse 24. So pretty important there how we are made to reflect upon what Solomon was doing in the building of his temple and also what Moses was doing in the building of the tent. Prototypes as they were where we are made to reflect into just not earthly sanctuary, but heavenly sanctuary. All right, how about the uh, four living creatures? Chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. Now, many Catholic churches have a depiction of the four living creatures somewhere on a stained glass window or altar rail. The man, uh, the lion, the ox, and the eagle. The, the fathers of the church, as some of us may be familiar with, associate the four living creatures with the four evangelists, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, who represents what or what represents who. Matthew is represented by the man since his gospel begins with Jesus's human genealogy, right? Which in the Hebrew is called Toledoth, Toledoth, the human genealogy. The lion stands for Mark. Why? Because his account begins with a voice in the wilderness where lions live and roam. So there's a sense of connection with Mark there. Luke is symbolized by the ox since his since his gospel begins and ends with the temple where oxen are slaughtered. I like that connection. And as many of us know, the eagle denotes John, whose gospel soars to the heights in contemplation of Christ's divinity. Benedict XVI used to love to talk about John as the one who soars as like that of a theologian, grasping for the divine so as to acquire a deeper understanding of divinity. So the four living creatures in the book of Revelation 
symbolized the four evangelists for the church fathers. But these four living creatures in the book of Revelation were also seen by the prophet Ezekiel. But they were seen somewhat differently. These living creatures, Ezekiel tells us, are angels, cherubim, upon whom God rides. Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. You have some beautiful verses there to read, speaking to what is going on with these four living creatures. The earthly temple had a copy of this in the images of the two cherubim who were on top of the what? But ark, right? Many of you have seen pictures of the ark, and there are those two images, the two cherubims, huh? So just as God's glory rested on the four living creatures, so too God's presence appeared over the cherubim on the ark in the temple, supplying the image of God riding on the cherubim. Some beautiful imagery there. Now, some have pointed out that the imagery of the four living creatures comes from the zodiac. For the ancients, the zodiac symbolized all the stars in the heavens, right? So the zodiac divided the heavens into four parts. The signs in the middle of these four parts are the lion, Leo, the man, Aquarius, the bull, Taurus, and the eagle. So scholars, therefore, believe that the four living creatures symbolize all of creation worshiping God. Now, again, this is important because worship is so important to these three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6. All right, how about the all-important holy, holy, holy in verses 8 to 10? And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing. So John sees the four living creatures, the cherubim, right? covered with eyes. This imagery is used to show us that they are all knowing, huh? They work as God's agents, seeing all things and reporting them to him. Their description calls to mind the seraphim that we read about in Isaiah, who also have six wings in chapter 6, verse 2. And like the seraphim in Isaiah's vision, the cherubim are singing what? Holy, holy holy. Now, for all of you Catholics out there, hopefully this should start to provoke a deeper sense of what the Mass is all about, because do we not sing the holy, holy, holy? Hopefully we are beginning to get a sense that, yes, the book of Revelation is very much about the Mass. The 24 elders, here again, the saints, take their cue from the cherubim, for they fall down and worship whenever the angels do. Through all eternity, they continue to offer God their lives in love, which is symbolized in the way they cast their crowns before the throne. Furthermore, the saints on earth participate in this liturgy. There is seen in chapter 5, verse 1, which tells us that the angels and 24 elders offer incense, which of course are the prayers of God's people. We'll speak much more to this. Why? Because we are made to reflect into the importance, again, 
that at Mass, the church enters into this heavenly liturgy as she sings with the angels and saints, holy, holy, holy. In verse 11, we read, Worthy art thou, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and by thy will they existed and were created. The prayers offered in heaven to God hearken back to David's prayer in First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10. Blessed art thou, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So this scroll seems to be a covenant document, right? It is sealed with seven seals. The number, of course, associated with covenant making. It is also important to note that it is written within and on the back. What does that sound like? But like the tablets of the Ten Commandments, right? Another covenant document. But what is exactly a covenant? And I know we've touched upon this before, but it would be important to to re-engage this. Some think that a covenant is basically the same thing as a contract. But as you've heard me say before, nothing could be farther from the truth. The difference between a covenant and a mere contract is that a contract involves the exchange of goods and services, while, of course, a covenant demands the very gift of self. Because of this, the difference between a covenant and a contract is like the difference between, as Michael Barber says, marriage and prostitution. Covenants, therefore, involve the forging of a bond that is so strong that it forms family ties, making sons and daughters husbands and wives. In this, we see that what God does always, anywhere and everywhere, reflects who God is. And one of my favorite quotes, John Paul II said, what about God? God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude, but a family since he has within himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of family, which is love. My dear friends, God is the primordial family of which all families are simply an image God is the essence of family. God's work through the covenants of salvation history reflects who he is, bringing us into life of the divine family. Since God is family, he seeks to make us family. And this will be very important as we continue our study into chapter 5, so as to gain a deeper appreciation, more insights into what John is seeing, especially in the light of how what he has seen is a reflection of God himself. Okay, with that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.